Um, this is really intimidating for me because I've never actually written a speech before, but I give the speeches about three times a week, so you can all judge me against uh, Tony Blair afterwards. And sorry, Chris, <laughs> one more thing. Can I just pop this on your collar? Yeah, guess? absolutely. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm going to run through this twice. I normally go through the slides once and just tell my story, but the whole point of telling the story today is to try and tell you why I tell the story the way I do. So, sort of, there's that's the method to the madness here. Um, I arrived in the UK in 2004, and I have always been interested in waste. So, of course, rather than Buckingham Palace or the Houses of Parliament or Oxford University, as beautiful as it is, I went to some landfill sites. I went to the Victorian sewers that are possibly the most unbelievable bit of construction you could ever see in London. I went to waste transfer stations. I was trying to understand why in that year 100 million tonnes of waste went to landfill in the UK. It's, a, it's an impossible figure to understand. And when I went to the landfill site, I thought it would all be the typical kind of chaos that you see on TV. I thought it was going to be seagulls and nappies and tennis rackets, and it wasn't. 30% of what goes to landfill is construction waste. So that's a very, very uniform material coming in. A lot of the waste that goes there is food. This is organic material that can be returned to the soil. And then what really, really, I suppose, changed my life forever was that I saw a fire hose. And I fell completely in love with it. And I wanted to save it. It was too difficult for me to say, I'm going to solve a 100 million ton a year problem. But it was very easy for me to put my foot down and say, well, I can't solve 100 million tons, but I am going to start with fire hose. So I went to Croydon, which is all, where all fire hoses go to die. <laughs> there's a team of 10 guys that assess every fire hose if it's really uh, damaged, if there's a catastrophic tear at meter 11 of a 22 meter hose, that's it. But if they can patch it, if they can keep it going, they do. In a good year, I get three tons of fire hose waste. A good year means that I'm just collecting the hoses that get to the end of their 25 year health and safety deadline. right? But in a bad year, like when we had Grenfell, for example, I can collect up to 12 tons of fire hose waste. So a bad year is when lots and lots of fire hoses get destroyed. And one thing that I also learned when I was researching the British waste problem, I had to do all of this at the British Library because at the time you couldn't Google everything. This is 2004. Wikipedia was not really working to the extent that it is today. I discovered that nitrile rubber, the material that makes up fire hose, is a kind of material that Louis Vuitton uses for its monogram collection. And knowing very, very little about luxury at the time, I thought, how hard can it be to beat a dead French luggage maker? <laughs> it wasn't actually that hard to make belts. It was incredibly hard to make bags and wallets. It took us about five years to make a product like this. But the material is absolutely stunning, and it has a provenance that Louis Vuitton's rubber just doesn't have. It has a history. It has a narrative. It is associated with <coughs> life-saving rescue. It's beautiful in itself. And for us, the idea that it was going to landfill was complete and total despair. It was undeserving death for a beautiful, heroic material. That's why we decided to rescue it. So 2005, we meet the fire hose. We decide to rescue it. We, we turn all of it into beautiful products. We're, we're com about complete and total and utter transformation. And I suppose the third thing that we do is that we give 50% of our money to charity. And in the case of the fire hose collection, 50% of the profits go to the firefighters' charity. Because it makes sense, you know, they're saving our lives, they're giving me this beautiful vintage material, I should give something <coughs> back. That was a very snap decision that I made the first day I met the fire service, and it was possibly the best decision I ever made. 
you know, proto -share shareholders or people who've wanted to work with us since then or, uh, you know, evil capitalists have always thought that 50% was quite a lot of money to give away. And I never have. The amount that we invest back into the community that gives us the hose has always been, even from a cold-hearted capitalist perspective, been worth its weight in gold. And that's because the more good that we did as a company, the more amazing things happened to us. It was real proof that karma exists. We had this happen to us in 2009. You know, for, for, for 2009, Vogue was still the most prominent fashion sort of tune in the world. That's where everybody went to find out what was happening. And we were in this image, it was a Cameron Diaz shot, it was Mario Testino was the photographer, and it was the centerfold image. And we were so excited to get this magazine that we had no idea why we were in. You know, they, we, we really genuinely had no idea how Vogue had discovered us. That we were looking at this image for days and days and days. And then when we closed the magazine, so imagine a week and a half later, you discover you're on the cover as well. <laughs> and that is impossible for a new company to, to achieve in the fashion space. Virtually impossible. And the only reason it happened to us is because we were doing something radically green, unbelievably beautiful, and we were giving money away. You know, we had this, this, this wonderful story that people wanted to tell and retell. So that's why this happened. And I think that gave us permission to go out and explore other materials. By 2010, we had solved the fire hose problem. So the, the crazy thing I decided to do in 2005 was done. And that meant we, we went back to landfill sites. We were looking for new materials. And one of the material problems that, that really started to annoy me was uh, the world's leather waste issue. So fire hose, you've got a three to, three to 12 ton a year problem in the UK. Leather waste is much, much bigger problem. And that's because you have a cowhide shaped like this. And funnily enough, that's not the same shape as a handbag or um, an armchair or a car seat. And when companies, particularly the high-end companies, are looking for big cuts, they are looking for cuts that do not have stretch marks, that do not have scratch marks, that do not have mosquito bites, that do not have cow armpits, because you get a slightly different <laughs> texture around the armpit of a cow. And that meant that 800,000 tons of leather is going to landfill or incineration every year. And this is leather that has never <coughs> seen the light of day. It's brand new, freshly tanned, and they either bur bury it or burn it. Um, in the UK alone, within five phone calls, we discovered two to 300 tons a month. So we knew this was a much bigger problem and needed a much bigger solution. And I wrote this as a design brief for Elvis. I don't know how much you know about the circular economy, but if we have any chance of a future, the economy we currently have, which is linear, you, ex you extract from the ground, you make something, you don't really care about death, that doesn't work anymore. Everything has to be circular. All materials have to be cherished. All materials have to be reused again and again and again in the same way that the natural system uses materials. And we have to power this whole system on renewable energy or we're also going to fail. So what was happening at the time, 2010, was that a lot of people were talking about the circular economy in an intellectual way, but nobody was designing for it. So when I got this leather waste and I brought it home, this was a design brief I gave to Elvis. I said, you have, we have to design something that can be taken apart for reuse. It has to be circular. And Elvis came up with three shapes that you can 
interlock to create whole new hides of virtually any size. And the first products we made were rugs. So we always like to start in two dimensions. I think it's very easy. And rugs, you know, lots of people like rugs. We started making these. They started selling very well. It was, uh, I think, a little bit more, we, given that we had never sold anything in the home space before, I think we were a little bit surprised by the success of this. But not everybody likes rugs, and certainly our existing clients didn't. You know, most of our existing customers wanted to buy belts and bags from us. So you can take this rug apart if you don't like it anymore, and you can make a cube. So there, cube's not so interesting, right? But three dimensions, we've proved that you can work in three dimensions. If you don't like the cube anymore, you can take it apart and you can make upholstery. Because this is a component-based system, you can iterate on it forever and ever and ever. And then finally, we got back to bags. So if you don't like your chair anymore, you can make a backpack. Actually, the backpack I have today. So if you want to see it, you can see it. Um, and I suppose we didn't just want to come up with a circular product. We wanted to actually live circular values through the product. And that meant that we took real inspiration from the building where we're based. We're based in Kent in this beautiful old building. Um, when we found it, it was not a beautiful old building. It was a beautiful shell with no heat, no power, 22 rotten windows, no planning permission, and two toilets that were far, far worse than the train spotting toilets. <laughs> um, but it is now the home of Elvis and Cressy, and it is a wonderful place to work. But this building was designed in 1837 to run on renewable energy. It's a mill. And then in the 1950s, they dumped a bunch of concrete on the wheel and killed it forever. So it's been our kind of honor, I suppose, to bring renewable energy back to the mill, but also to take inspiration from it. 50% of the profits from our leather collection go to renewable energy projects because we have to put our money where our heart is, I suppose. And after our first year of, of real leather rescue, which would, was last year, we were able to generate three scholarships to train female solar engineers. And this is all from rescuing material that would otherwise go to the ground. Um, I suppose it's always important for us to talk about what our values are, and that's why I put them all right here on one page. You know, we're never trying to do one thing well. We're always trying to achieve multiple positive objectives. It's not enough for us to be using rescued raw materials. We have to be paying everyone a living wage. In the fashion industry, it's acceptable to have 14 unpaid interns. Except it's acceptable, it's actually legal in this country to pay apprentices £3.30 an hour. But that's not a moral decision, so we don't take it. Our apprentices are paid a living wage. I don't care if they're 17 years old and just finished their GCSEs. They still have to live. And we do not have any unpaid interns. We set up a workshop within a prison because we learned that it's, uh, uh, someone who's in prison is 60% less likely to reoffend if they're engaged in active employment and training and it's paid. So we did that just because it seemed like the right thing to do. It's never enough to just do one thing well. We have very short time in order to save the environment, in order to create some kind of atmosphere where people love each other again. And that's how Elvis and I run the business, by achieving these multiple positive objectives. We also have this really odd way of making business decisions. It has zero to do with whether we think it's going to make us more money or not. It has everything to do with whether or not we think it's going to make the world better for other people's grandchildren. This is a really, really good binary black and white way to assess what you're trying to do. So Elvis and I couldn't make landmines because that would materially make the world worse for some other person's grandchild. 
it really helps you to kind of always steer a path that, that, that is going to be good for the environment and good for its people. Uh, we are a social enterprise. In the UK, that means that up to that at least 50% of your profits are redistributed to a charitable cause, and you exist to solve social and environmental problems. It also means that you make most of your revenue through trade. We make all of our revenue through trade. We're a founding UK B Corp. The really interesting thing about being a B Corp is that you have to change the constitution of your business to say that shareholders are no longer king. I think being a business is great. It's a wonderful way. I mean, I studied politics at university, but the last thing in the world I would be good at is politics because I'm a very dictatorial person that doesn't like to compromise. I absolutely want to get my own way and yet believe in democracy. So the democratic system would fail me. Maybe benevolent dictatorship would be better. Right? So I went into business because effectively, if you can keep the doors open of a business, you can be a benevolent dictator. You can be free to do as much good as you want. So it's actually an incredible, uh, an incredible structure. But when you're a B Corp, you have to officially change your constitution to say shareholders are not king. The environment and its people are equally important, which throws fiduciary duty out of, out of the window. And possibly if that had been a tenet of capitalism since the beginning, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in now. Um, we're radically transparent. There isn't anything that you could ask me that I, wouldn't that I wouldn't answer you truthfully. And if I didn't know the answer, I would find out for you. We have a completely open workshop. Anyone can come at any time. We do not have any black boxes anywhere. We do not keep any secrets. We do open book accounting. When I say I give 50% of the profits away, I want you to understand that that is absolutely true. And the only way for you to believe that is for you to know that the Firefighters Charity, the London Fire Brigade, all of our stakeholders, they are all checking our books every year. So you don't have to trust me. You can trust all of our stakeholders instead, our beneficiaries instead. And I suppose the only time I ever get really interested in talking about money is this equation right here. If you put a ton of leather waste in the ground, it costs you 410 pounds to bury it. If you put, a if you put that same ton of leather into our system, we can generate 100,000 pounds of revenue. And the only reason to celebrate this ratio is because it proves the insanity of waste. <coughs> if, I have to, if I have to use a metric that every CFO of every luxury business will understand in order to change their minds about waste, then this one works in a very, very dramatic way. Our first partner for the Leather Waste Initiative was Burberry. They throw away nine tons of leather waste a month. And it was really easy to sell this project to the CFO when you can explain that they were basically throwing away 32 million pounds a year. It makes sense. Um, and then my final slide is always a picture of Elvis because most people think Elvis and Cressy, uh, they only ever meet me. He stays in the workshop all the time. And they think that we use Elvis because it Googles well. So I use this slide <laughs> to prove to you that he is a real person. And in this image, he is wearing our, the first ever belt that we made, which he still wears every day. Okay, so that's the, that's the story. That's the story of Elvis and Cressy. Now, I kind of want to retell it again to tell you why we tell the story in the way that we do. So these first three slides, I would say, are our foundational slides. It just describes to you what we do. We rescue materials, we transform them into beautiful things, and we give 50% of the profits away. And that is a story that's intrinsically good. And I think in the past, you've had a lot of people fail to convey green messages or environmental messages well, because they didn't see or didn't recognize that that, that story is intrinsically good too. Anyone who's trying to tell an environmental message is, has the moral high ground, immediately. 
And they're already telling something that everyone is passionate about and believes in anyway. I don't know a single person that doesn't have an environmental touchstone. You know, for some people it's dolphins, for some people it's laying in the grass or swimming in a river. But they're only psychopaths don't have connection to the natural world. So the environmental message should be a very easy message to sell. Sustainability should be intrinsically easy to sell and to talk about because the earth is something that we all love. It's a very primal thing. I just think we're talking about it in, in a slightly different way. And that's why I think this image is very important too. You know, we didn't start talking about Elvis and Cressy in the same language that I just used. The first website we had was fire-hose.co.uk. <laughs> the business is officially registered as Eco Limited because that stands for Elvis and Cressy's organization. We didn't talk about rescue. <coughs> we talked about waste and reclamation. And what we learned over time is that, you know, and this was a lesson I had to learn. I thought everybody loved waste just as much as I did. <laughs> and I, it took a long time to work out that in order for people to buy Firehose goods, I had to explain why Firehose was worthwhile. I had to make it wonderful pe for people. I had to make it something that they would cherish too. And of course you can do that through quality and craftsmanship, but you can also do it through language and imagery. And that's why we use in all of our, in all of our discussions very, very powerful images of beautiful products and beautiful settings. Because it's the best way to convey to you that I cherish these materials and they were well crafted and that they are uh, on a par quality-wise with any other luxury good. It's just that our story is so much better. So that's been the biggest lesson for me, was, was learning that I have to find out how to make this wonderful for everyone else. And then I guess it, when it comes to um, sorry, the design brief, this is where it's really important that, and I think a lot of environmental messaging gets lost. And it's because people think that you can just put environmental messaging on a thing and show a graph and say, yes, climate change, this is the, hockey, the climate change hockey stick, so we have to all change. We have to all, behavior has to stop overnight. Of course it's true, but that doesn't, hasn't worked for anyone. The green movement, to a certain extent, has failed to engage. And I think it's because for a long time people were saying, we have to absolutely change everything about our relationship with the natural world, but let's do it through a small CSR program and a graph and a chart and something really dull. It has to be about something powerful and emotional. So it can't, and I think people can tell the difference between a tweak and true innovation. And that's what this design brief was meant to set Elvis on the path of. I didn't want him to tweak the concept of leather in some way. I wanted him to do something groundbreaking. Believe it or not, no one had ever woven scrap leather before. It's something that, bizarrely, we had to invent in 2010. Um, then if you look at these three, a rug, a cube, uh, or these four, a chair, and a backpack, this is all about iterations. I don't really write speeches. I always write about five or six bullet points, and then I come up with anecdotes around them and stories to tell that hopefully make them powerful for people. But they're all different age groups. So you're always iterating, not just based on, let's say, the weather or the politics of the day. You know, watching David Cameron and the, some of those speeches is hideously depressing for all of us right now because we know that actually nothing is simple about any of that, right? But you have to be able to iterate on the spot. 
And I think that must be incredibly difficult for speechwriters because you're giving a perfect piece to someone who then messes it up based on what's happening that day. But I think there has to be a way to empower people to kind of learn from stand-up comedians who are very, very good at reading the room, who are very good at understanding maybe an 11-year-old doesn't understand the, the, the train spotting joke because they've never heard of that film, you know? So it could be on a different, on any given day, I would talk about the mill in, in a, I would talk about this building to different people in different ways. When I'm talking to young people, I talk about the fact that it was powered by a gigantic 20-foot wheel that's absolutely unbelievable and is covered in concrete. And the way we found it was by sticking our head down a hole in the, in the cellar of the, of the building. But this is a message that has to change to every group. And I think this is something that we fail to do with green messaging because we think that all we have to present is the straight data. All we have to present is one truthful set of metrics. And actually what we have to do is make it wonderful for people. We have to adjust, we have to make it funny sometimes, we have to make it sad sometimes. We have to make it emotional always. Um, I think the, the other thing that's probably really hard, um, I, I can't imagine what this is like actually as a speechwriter because I, I write about us. I write for us and about us, about a life that we've chosen, about the last 13 years of our work. It means something to me personally, so it's obviously quite an authentic story to retell. But if you can't find the, 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 those truths about people, then I'm not sure how you can write really authentic speeches, whether they be green or not. For me, there's always sort of three key things. It has to be about truth. You know, our only marketing strategy is truth. I've never had a campaign about anything. We just tell people what we do. We tell people what we actually do. And that is a, that is a really profound message. So it has to be, for me, about truth. It has to be about wearing your heart absolutely on your sleeve. And it has to be really action-oriented. People have to see that we're actually physically doing something. And that's where the trust comes. So I think most speeches actually fundamentally have to be about that. Really the truth, whether it's good or bad, really some, how someone's heart on their sleeve feels about it, and then what action they're going to take. And if they can't deliver on that action, as often happens in politics, what they're going to do about their failure. I wouldn't know how to write a speech if I didn't think the person was capable of those three things. And maybe, maybe the most profound thing that speechwriters can do is abandon bad politicians. <laughs> Don't give them your talent. You know, when I'm talking to students in, in the, I give a, a couple of annual lectures uh, here for the MBA students. And the biggest message that I give to them is, please do not leave this institution and take your talent and your ideas and go and work for an oil and gas company. One. Okay, so I was on a panel, and I think this is really important as well. I was on a panel with one of the chairmen of Shell once. And I actually said, you know, I give half of my money away, why don't you? And he said, oh, you know, there'd be shareholder revolt. And I said, well, you got executive pay through somehow. How did you manage that one? And actually, the one thing, the one thing that I think is the most profound about doing the work that we do, 13 years of impact, is that I have earned the 
right to request of others what I expect from myself. And that's why I think it's totally fine for you to abandon bad politicians and abandon bad leaders because we don't have time to prop them up and support them. And I guess, you know, we can go back to this image again. But for me, fundamentally, the earth and the environmental message is about love. And I don't do any of this if it isn't about love. And of course, it's about love of Elvis. He is amazing. But it's also about love of fire hoses. It's about love of other people's grandchildren. And it's trying to do something that fundamentally makes me sleep very, very, very well at night. Thank you.